Thanks so much for joining us today. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Job chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter 2 verse 10. It would be great if you could push pause on this video now and go and read through Job chapter 1 up until Job chapter 2 and verse 10. And we'll see you back here in just a moment. Is there such a thing as faith in God that is more than just selfishness? Today, we begin our journey through the book of Job. And as we begin, let me tell you that if we're going to get to the heart of the message of Job, we're going to have to put aside some of our own pressing questions that we might want answers to. We're not going to learn from the book of Job how to rise above suffering. Job has plenty of answers but they aren't necessarily to the questions that we might have. Uh, Job is not going to answer the question of the problem of suffering. He's not going to answer the question of why do innocent people suffer. But Job is going to deal with the real issues of human life, all of human life. When we hear the message of this book and we allow it to speak for itself, then we will hear what God himself is saying. Now, the Bible never dismisses tragedy or suffering. Uh, in this book alone, we have 42 chapters on the subject. The book of Job is long because coming to grips with this subject matter takes time. It has to be worked through slowly. There are no answers that we can learn to recite when we're faced with loss or bereavement or anything related to those events. You cannot fit answers to those questions on a postcard or a fridge magnet or a coffee mug. The book of Job says, come with me on a journey, a journey that will take time. There's no instant answer. You can't add a spoonful of Job, uh, some hot water from a kettle, and hope that you'll have it all figured out in an instant. Job is a poetic narrative with a slow pace and long delays because there's no instant working through grief. There's no quick fix to pain. Uh, no message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a 42-chapter journey with no satisfactory bypass. And so with that as our introduction, let's dive straight into Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, we learn uh, from Job at the outset uh, that his righteousness was legendary. In the land of Uz, we don't know where that was, it wasn't in Israel though, there lived a man whose name was Job, and he was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. This is a description of a person who recognizes God as God and lives in light of this reality. Here is a true believer, a man who walked before God with a clear conscience, his sins confessed and forgiven, his life showing all the marks of a true worshiper. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkey, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the East. He has a large, harmonious, joyful, wealthy, and healthy family. He is considered uh, the greatest of all the people in that land and its surrounds. 
In all of this, Job maintains his godliness. He is watchful in prayer, ever concerned as his highest priority in life to keep himself and his family in a right relationship with God. Verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So here is a man, a picture of virtue, showered with blessings. This is the ending that everyone hopes for, and Job has achieved it at the beginning of the story. When we read through these first five verses, we think everything is right in this world. It works the way that it should. But then in verse six, we're taken to another realm. In verse six, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Here are the servants of the king. They're gathered to give their progress reports and to receive orders. Each one has a responsibility and a duty to perform. Among them, we're told, is one called Satan, literally the Satan. We do not need to be surprised by this, for Satan himself is a servant of God, an unwilling and rebellious servant, but he cannot lift a finger without God's permission. Martin Luther said of him that he is God's Satan. He is answerable and accountable to God for all that he does. So here he is amongst the servants, and, and, and that's worth remembering. Um, I don't know, as a young person, this is something I used to struggle with. It's worth remembering that here is Satan amongst the servants. It's worth remembering that if ever you think that there is a cause to be afraid of Satan. I remember lying in my bed at night, struggling, fearing Satan. But here we discover we have no need to fear him because he actually uh, is under the control and the sovereignty and the rule of God. He cannot lift a finger without God's permission. Uh, the Satan is a title that describes his function. He's an adversary. He is an accuser. His role is to roam the earth and to report on evil. But this agent also takes it upon himself to provoke and incite evil. And he delights in delivering his reports. The Lord asks him for this report, and Satan's response is not much of a response at all. Kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, Oh, I've been doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Just the usual stuff. Nothing really to report God. You know, kind of the way you would expect a rebellious servant to respond to their master. So, what did you find? For the Lord is always on the lookout for real believers, for men and women with integrity who will love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Perhaps Satan's reply is that he really hasn't found anything worth reporting, that on the earth there are no true worshippers of God, and that in light of this, the king is really not worthy of being the king, since he has no real followers on the earth. And so the Lord picks up the challenge laid before him in verse 8, and to our own shock and horror, he says, Well, have you considered my servant Job? Look at him and what he's like. Satan seems less than impressed. 
it's fascinating that the deceiver and the father of lies uh, always seems to be able to twist and spin a situation to his own end. Of Job, the Lord says, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. The Satan scoffs at, jo at God. Does Job fear God for nothing? He has a hedge around him. Godliness like Job's is not good because it is only self-serving and done out of self-interest. Uh, the accusation is that faith is only ever selfish. It's only ever faith because of what a person gets out of it. Now this isn't surprising that the Satan goes there because this is the condition of the human heart. So much religion is built around what can I get out of God, whether it is wealth and health and prosperity, or it is about feelings and self-help and emotions and self-actualization. It is the gospel that the two sons in the parable of the prodigal son both hold to. They both want the things, the stuff of the father, but neither of them wants the father himself. So here is the question, is there such a thing as faith in God that is more than just selfishness, self-serving, and self-interest? Are you simply in it for what you can get out of it? Will Job still trust God if he was getting nothing out of the deal? Well, at this point, the story takes a turn. God defends the faith of his servant by granting a terrible permission. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face, is what Satan says. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything that he has is in your hand, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. It's a terrible permission. Why does God do this? Well, no explanation is given. God simply allows the test to go ahead, and so Job's suffering becomes an unexplained fact of life. We're not given the human explanation of suffering in the experience of Job. The explanation lies behind the scenes in a world that we do not fully understand or comprehend. What we can say is that God has confidence that there is such a thing as good godliness. God is prepared to demonstrate that there is faith in God that is not just self-serving, self-interest. And so we move to verses 13 to 22. On that day, or on the day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, this is what happened. A messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them and they put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came. The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this point you think, well, why did this begin with Job's sons and daughters feasting? And then another servant comes in while the third one was still speaking and says, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And you think to yourself, no. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Here is a summary. There's human evil, then there's a natural disaster, then there's human evil, then there is natural disaster. And at the end of this day, Job is left completely desolate. The greatest man in the land of the East has been brought to nothing and has lost everything. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job's response is worship. He responds in faith to God. Job's faith contrary to what the accuser said would happen, that he would curse God, is proved to be genuine. In Job's declaration, Job knows that eventually he will die and take nothing away. It's almost as if he has died today. He understands that all his possessions and all his children were gifts from the Lord. By the nature of uh, the godness of God, he gives and it is therefore entirely his prerogative to take away as he sees fit and when he chooses. This is part of God being God. So Job blesses the name of the Lord. He expresses uh, the wish that all who hear his story will bless God for it. The Satan said Job would curse God to his face, and on the contrary, his response to terrible loss is wonderfully blessing the God who has given and has now seen fit to take away. In the moment of his loss, his first thought is of the God who had first given. Uh, the story seems to conclude, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. What this man says about God is the key issue at stake. He has been anxious that his children might have cursed God in their hearts. The Satan has predicted that Job will curse God to his face, and instead he responds with blessing. It is a wonderful and amazing conclusion to a terrible story, but it's not the conclusion. The next section is a shock. And friends, we need to learn to be shocked and shocked and shocked again by this story, and never to let the familiarity of it dull the sharpness of the pain. Things may be unspeakably painful for Job, but they're deeply threatening for the Satan 
whose whole project of hostility to God is under threat by this man who worships the living God even when he has no blessing to show for it. But the Satan isn't done, and he begins the cycle again. In chapter 2, verse 1, On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, and the Lord said to Satan, and so we have this repeat, and the Lord said to Satan again, Have you considered my servant Job? And you think, No. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. And now God adds, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Again, the Satan is able to twist the situation. This time, he replies, we haven't gone far enough. Skin for skin. So long as a person has their health, they have not really been tested. You can lose it all and you can still be selfish because you're only interested in yourself. Stretch out your hand and take away his health and then he will curse you. The point here seems to be that there is a distinction between what a person has and who a person is. Uh, what a person is, is closer to the person's heart. Uh, I am attached to what I have, whether it is impersonal possessions or personal relations. It hurts me to have those taken away, but it does not ultimately hurt me as deeply as when my inner skin is penetrated and the attack reaches who I am, to my own body and my own soul. And this is what the Satan demands. Shockingly, and it truly is shocking, the Lord agrees. Uh, having rebuked the Satan for inciting him against Job without valid reason, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Had we been writing this story, we would have had the Lord say to Satan, Enough is enough. The man has suffered more than any human being in one day. He has been taken from riches to bankruptcy, from greatness to destitution, uh, from family to utter bereavement. That is enough, surely to establish that his integrity is true and his faith is genuine. The man worships me because he knows I am worthy of worship. This is the end, Satan. That's what we would have written. But the Lord disagrees with us, and that needs to teach us something very deep in our souls. The glory of God really is more important than your or my comfort. When all that Job has is taken away from him, we may get an approximate or provisional demonstration that God is worthy of worship. But an approximate or provisional demonstration is not sufficient for the ultimate glory of God. In the end, it is necessary and right that this man should suffer personal and intimate attack upon himself, so that we see absolutely and without doubt that God is worthy of worship. It is necessary for this man to demonstrate a full and deep obedience to the glory of God.
So Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord in verse 7, and the pace quickens because there was not another day. It happens immediately, and the situation intensifies. This time, the agent of the suffering is not human or impersonal forces in, in nature. It's Satan himself who struck Job. Uh, we're not told what medical causes uh, were inflicted upon him, but we are told that he was struck uh, with a skin with loathsome sores from head to toe. It was a total and intimate affliction with no break. All of Job's person is invaded, and all of what's left of any protective hedge is completely destroyed. And so he sits in the ashes uh, on the, the rubbish dump outside the city, the place that Jesus would later describe as the best human representation of hell. Uh, Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it to try and alleviate some of the pain. Everything about Job is broken, and he's alone. So this really is the test whether or not he will serve God only for what God gives him or for another reason. For now God has taken it all away. God could not take away anything more from Job without killing him. And then we would never know the result of the trial. And yet there is one more trial. Uh, Job's wife makes her only appearance in the drama possible that uh, Satan knew exactly what he was doing by sparing Job's wife because he realized that in her he had an ally. Uh, we must resist the temptation to romanticize Job and his wife. All we know of her is that at this moment of lonely suffering she pleads with him, do you still hold fast your integrity as God uh, says that he does? Just curse God and die. She knows, as Job knows, that to curse God ultimately brings uh, human beings under the sentence of death. Uh, this is why Job had offered all those burnt sacrifices to protect his children from this very fate. This is what Job had refused to do in the first round of trials back in chapter 1 and verse 21. But not for the last time in human history, a wife has seen her husband suffering so terribly that she has wished him the peace of death. We're not invited to make any moral judgments about Job's wife. Whatever her motive, she is the mouthpiece of a terrible temptation. Augustine calls it the devil's assistant, and Calvin calls it Satan's tool, asking Job to do what the Satan wants him to do. Job hears the pleading of his nearest and dearest to abandon his proud principles about God and just give in and let rip against God and bring upon himself judgment and death. But Job's reply is a model of faith under trial. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. In kindness, he doesn't call her a foolish woman. He just says, you speak like a foolish woman would speak. But he says that what she has suggested is not worthy of her. Hers is a suggestion that you would expect from a fool. For a fool says in their heart, there is no God. She has spoken under distress. And so far from cursing Job, God, Job says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive trouble also?
Job speaks, not self-centeredly of himself alone, but of them both, shall we. And again, as after the first trial, Job's heart is full of God, the author of all good gifts. All the good he has received, he received from God. Can he not trust the same God to give him evil, trouble, and harm, and to believe that God knows best? This sense of, uh, of receiving is to accept with humility, bowing beneath God's loving sovereignty and providence. So friends, that is the story of the beginning of the book of Job. As we bring it all together, let me end by asking a couple of questions. Number one, is your faith in God, is your relationship with God more than just selfishness? Do you want the stuff that the Father has, or do you want the Father himself? Is God enough? And that was the place that Job was at in both his declarations of worship, knowing God and knowing that God was enough. Secondly, is God's glory your supreme concern? In all of life, come what may, whether God sends good or troubles, do you pursue his glory and want to see his glory demonstrated in your life beyond your own comfort and your own pleasures and the things that you can get out of life? Will you allow God's glory to be demonstrated in and through you, like Job did, where God proved that there is such a thing as good godliness, as faith that isn't just selfishness? Lastly, we need to see that God does care. What even those circumstances might cry out, God does not care about you. God is not good. And if he is good, he's not good to you. To believe that is foolishness. Only someone who knows God and who knows that God is good can say, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Who can say this? The one who knows God, who knows that God is good because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who knows that God is good because he sent his son, because he loved the world to such an extent that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. If you know that God is good, then you will be able to accept both the good and the trouble. Satan said Job would curse God, but the Satan was wrong. He does not understand what genuine faith in God is like. Look at Job to see what faith in God is like. But look beyond the faith that Job had to what God is like. Job was able to have this faith in God because God is sovereign. He rules over all things, evil, and Satan himself. Job believed that God is sovereign over all things and good. And as his experience shouted out that God 
does not care, knowing God's goodness and knowing God's sovereignty did something that no human comfort can do. And to some extent, Job stands where we stand. We know the goodness of God in the gospel. We can cry out, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all compassion, the God of all comfort. We know his comfort, not because of what happens to us, but despite of what happens to us. And so we can say with Job, if we receive good from God, shall we not receive trouble also? The Lord gave, and the Lord may well take away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And that is all fueled through knowing God, through Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, do you know this God? Do you know this sovereign, good God? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us to meditate on this beginnings of the story of Job. Let them wash over us, let them filter down into our hearts. And as we begin this journey, we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and open our hearts to a closer relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.